even though wisdom may be, you know, not to be the goofball and to not openly question yourself or, or open yourself up for debate. I think that that has worked out really well for me. I've been thinking a lot about this as in, in the presidential election and electability as a thing. And it's a lot like the idea that a corporate person needs to be a certain way. I think it's, can I curse on here? Yeah, of course. It's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Kate Lewis, the chief content officer at Hearst Magazines, a company that owns titles like Cosmo, Elle, Marie Claire, and Popular Mechanics, just to name a few. She's worked in publishing most of her career after landing a low-level job out of college. There used to be these big, like, cattle call job fairs. I walked into, it was in Madison Square Garden. This was, like, massive. And I was in my, you know, nice black suit that I bought at the Limited or somewhere. (laughs) I looked across the room and everyone was in a black suit. And I called my mom and said, oh, mom, I need to buy a suit that's a different color. You got to let me use the emergency credit card. So I wore a red suit and I got both of those job offers. Since then, she's become one of the most powerful women in the magazine world. Though you may not think of C-suite executives as smiley, friendly people, Kate is. And she wants others to know that just like her, they don't need to change who they are to be successful either. I think that I found my success when I became who I am. At a certain point, I think I became comfortable with just being Kate. And that enabled me to have more candid, more deep, more real conversations with the people who were either going to hire me or were going to manage me or who I was going to work with. And now, here's my conversation with Kate Lewis. I wanted to start with a piece of advice you gave in an interview this summer uh-huh. that caused kind of a stir. I, it was <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> you said once a week, you write down a giant to-do list and then throw it out. Explain your thinking there. I mean, the truth is I have had so many tricks and ways to try and keep track of what I'm supposed to do. And none of them have really successfully kept me on schedule. And so I thought, you know, writing, like if I'm doing a speech or something, writing is the easiest way that I can remember all the things I'm supposed to. So I'm like, okay, I take notes all week in meetings. And at the end of the week, I'll distill them. I'll write them down into a list. And then I will basically not ever look at that list again and just go through my week. And hopefully the things that are important that I need to do are retained. And I do have another sort of side policy, which is that I encourage people to nudge me. So if there's something I'm supposed to do for someone else that I don't think was that important and fell off the (laughs) list, then they they come after me and they are encouraged to. So you don't have the satisfaction like myself of like crossing. I mean, I think I put things on my to-do list just, just to cross them off. Crossed, I've yeah. already done them. <laughs> totally. I know that is sort of a disappointment. I do miss the cross-off thing. Because it's not that you don't have a lot of responsibilities. You clearly do. We're here at Hearst's offices in New York City, but it publishes a bunch of magazines that everybody knows. Walk us a little bit through Hearst. And and my my world at Hearst? Okay. I'm like, wow, where do I begin with Hearst? There's so much. <laughs> yeah. So much happening. <laughs> um, so my my particular mandate is to oversee the content teams across our I'm gonna say twenty-seven, but to be honest, I'm not absolute about the number of titles we have, which I probably should have written that down. Maybe I'd remember <laughs> it. And so that is everything from what the print looks like to what the digital looks like to what video looks like and how those things are coexisting and 
there are probably four things that I am particularly focused on as as deliverables for the content team. Obviously, the first one is a big and happy audience that feels like we're a place for them. The other most important one is let's make some money. <laughs> um, and then I think a lot about the influence of our brands. And then I think a lot about the future of our brands. And so to me, one of the most important tenets of what we do here is this idea of experiment to learn. And so our teams are persistently in this place of trying to reach audiences and tell stories in new ways. And sometimes those things fail. And we sort of celebrate the failures, too, because I think that helps us keep lively. So you've not been in this role super long, but was there a mandate when you came in, I want to change X, or you just kind of wanted to keep the ship kind of going in the same direction? I mean, one of the things, you know, that has been high on our agenda is that print and digital were operating separately. And so a big part of this past year for me has been about, you know, getting those teams together either in, you know, complete integration or real collaboration and and partnership and understanding the disciplines on both sides so that our editors are most equipped with all of the media that we publish in now. So that has felt like the big one. Yeah, it's sometimes hard in journalism. I mean, Politico is a digital first platform. So, you know, you don't think about the front page in the same way that I did when I first got into journalism. And so kind of changing that psyche can, I'm sure, be a little bit like changing the course of a ship a little bit. Yeah, I think also that thing of like digital is an immediate gratification or disappointment platform, right? (laughs) Whereas print is a slow burn. And so there is a really different thinking that actually both teams can benefit from the understanding that the other one has of their platform. And the challenge is, can you do both? And I think for some people, it's been really eye-opening and like, oh, wow, I can think two ways at once. And for other people, it's really a struggle and there's lots to learn. And so we've done all kinds of things here. We have now a um, kind of a, a curriculum to teach people, you know, sort of skills on both sides, whether it's digital or print or whether it's even just the next level in their career, just to keep people engaged with the fact that like persistent change is fundamentally what our industry is now. And so there's always more to learn. So what's a typical day in the life? I mean, I have so many meetings. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I I have my commute home is an hour and then um, sometimes I'm commuting upstate. And so that's two hours. And that is like pure like reading and email time. But at the office, I'm always with people, which is good because I like being with people. And so I delight in that. But I have like a meeting every second of the day. Right. Very scheduled. Yes. And lots of, you know, there because there are so many brands and because there is so much going on, connecting to those people, listening to them, understanding what their what their challenges are and what has been awesome for them feels really critical. But also I think that, you know, because of the pace that we're at, you particularly know this, right? It's hard to pull back and say, what is the bigger picture here? And so I like to be the person that helps them, you know, think about that from time to time. I'm curious, you talked about claiming your personal time for yourself, Mm -hmm. not checking work email at home, mentally recharging on the subway. What led to that choice? Wow, did I talk about that? I must have been lying. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm kidding. I um I do use the subway and my commute time to like get through with all the emails that I didn't that day. But I I am pretty good at God, am I pretty good? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do feel like 
having things that obsess you outside of work helps you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because work is an obsession, especially Mm -hmm. for someone like me, since I delight in it so much. So if you have competitive obsessions, that is useful. And those could be anything from like the, you know, two-year Grey's Anatomy binge that I'm on (laughs) with my 15-year-old to my recent return to running, which I'm trying to do now like every day. And that's a pain in the butt, but it's, it's compulsive. So there are things you do to carve out. But I think you have to you know, lounging is hard if you're an obsessive person in general. Mm-hmm. Did you come to like this theory of the case later in life? Like a lot of people in the C-suite aren't known for relaxing yes. or taking a lot of time off, right? Yeah. Because they are obsessive people, right? Yeah. They want to strive for that next yeah. job. I think I just came up with a theory right now. I was like, oh, wait, how do I get away from here? And I was like, it's because I'm compulsive about other things. <laughs> I like Travel it. is another one. And that's a good thing if you're a vacation taker. Like I just recently went to Mexico City for a weekend because oh, I was like, I was just there. It's great, so right? Great. Yeah. It's wonderful there. And it's really easy to get to. Like it's a direct flight from New York. You can go for three days and get a ton out of it. So, so it's, you know, again, I wouldn't say that I, it was like leisure time. I was like, what can I do with three days? Everything. Right. But it was great. Um, well, let's take step back. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, I actually was born like two blocks from the Hearst Tower. Wow. Um, and uh, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I lived there almost my whole life. I spent a year of high school in Chicago, but otherwise have, was a Manhattanite through and through. What did your parents do? Well, my father is a photo historian and he was for many, many years the photo curator at the Art Institute of Chicago. And my mother was an advertising executive. So she is that, I think the character's name was Peggy in yeah. Mad Men. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. She graduated from Mount Holyoke in 1964 and went straight into the copy pool at J. Walter Thompson and rose to be a creative director. And so I grew up going to commercial sets and understanding women who create and women who create for a business. And, you know, both my parents, I think, have been very influential in terms of the fact that they were also obsessed with work and and took real delight in it, you know, found the thing that was right for them. So how did you get your foot in the door? Oh, it's such a good story. <laughs> such a good story. I was a I was a, a a magazine addict as a kid. I loved. I got, you know, them all at home and I would cut them out and I like scrapbooked and I was really into particularly women's journal women's lifestyle journalism, which is where I spent most of my career. And so from my when I was in college, there used to be these big like um cattle call job fairs. I don't know if they still exist or if that's all on the internet. I imagine it's all digital now. But um, I had secured two interviews. It was like March of my senior year of college. One was with ABC News. I had interned at NBC News the summer before, so I had been interested in television. And the other one was at Condé Nast. And I walked into, it was in Madison Square Garden. This was like massive. And I was in my, you know, nice black suit that I bought at the limited or somewhere. (laughs) I looked across the room and everyone was in a black suit. And I called my mom and said, oh, mom, I need to buy a suit that's a different color. You got to let me use the emergency credit card. And so I wore a red suit and I got both of those job offers. Wow! (laughs) But Condé Nast was the clear choice for me. I was such a fan of so many of their brands and that's what I'd always wanted. And I worked my way up there. So you started as a personal assistant to the art director of Vanity Fair. Yes. Back then, was it always your goal to become an editor? I think that I actually, my goal weirdly was always to be a managing editor. So one of my mother's close friends, one of her college roommates was the managing editor of Vogue, 
Hence how I got my interview. Probably how I got my job. It wasn't the red suit at all, but nepotism <laughs> aside. <laughs> and so I understood what that was. And I, I myself really loved and gravitated towards creative people. And I loved the idea of being a managing editor, which is like helping everyone do their best work as a team. And so that was what I wanted to do. You've said, uh, I was reading, I'm better on a team than on my own. Yes, totally. I just actually, before um, I was meeting with you, I I was in a meeting with my deputy, Brooks Eagle, who is absolutely one of the most brilliant editors I know. And she and I were mulling over, obviously, the events of this weekend and stuff like that. And I just, you know, whenever I talk with her, I feel like we go deeper and get farther than I would if I was just sitting around my house by myself. Mm -hmm. So I, I really value um, it's a huge part, I would say, of my leadership is that I'm a collaborator. And I think that in this industry, we are only stronger if we collaborate with each other, even across brands, which has been somewhat radical here because uh, many of our brands are so competitive for ad dollars and marketplace mm-hmm. and all that. But I just I think we win when we strategize as a as a unit. So in 2001, you started Self Magazine mm-hmm. and ended up staying there for a decade. yes. The great Lucy Danziger <laughs> was my boss. So how, I mean, you've seen publishing change so much. What has been the most dramatic thing that you think has changed? I mean, obviously, the internet has been the most incredible change for us. You know, when I was at Self, we had the Self Challenge, and we were considered revolutionary mm-hmm. because we had this three-month fitness plan that you could do on the web and log I remember on. remember yeah. yeah, it was very successful. And, you know, I think we thought, that at that point we thought, well, digital will support print, but we couldn't really understand that it would maybe supplant it or at least be hyper competitive with it in the days to come. The phone changed that. Mm. So as soon as, you know, one of the great luxuries about magazines is the sort of ephemeral and ephemeral and portable nature of them. And the phone has given the same thing. So it was the combination of the internet plus this device that makes consumption so easy. And, you know, what has been wonderful to be a part of is that what that has meant for us in this kind of medium that I am, we say lifestyle journalism, which sounds cheesy, but let's be honest, that's what we do here, um, is that the desire, the hunger for this kind of content has only grown with the ability to access it more readily. So we are still very much in demand. We just have to think about how we produce it differently. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was interesting in doing some research for this podcast was your kind of thoughts on being optimistic and smiley <laughs> and <laughs> the struggle that a lot of women have yeah. as you climb up the ladder because it can be very lonely as the leader and you, yeah. know, you want to have teams, but you want to be taken seriously. What's your advice for women who, and our audience who's listening to this who are trying to kind of balance that maybe personality that isn't always seen as the leadership quality? I think that I found my success when I became who I am. And that's hard in the magazine industry. There are a lot of, there is an image, right? That you need to be a high fashion person, that you need to be, you know, have been a, a, you know, journalist in the trenches. There are so many ways to come up that are types. And at a certain point, I think in my career, I became comfortable with just being Kate. And that enabled me to have more candid, more deep, more real conversations with the people who were either going to hire me or were going to manage me or who I was going to work with. And I think that has made me more successful. I really hope that the people who work with me 
understand that they're getting what I am and that transparency feels critical to me. And this is not about subterfuge. This is about us as a, as a team winning and being inspired. And so even though wisdom may be, you know, not to be the goofball and to not openly question yourself or, or open yourself up for debate, I think that that has worked out really well for me. And I mean, I think it's coupled with the fact that I am decisive. Um, and when I see the path, I go after it and that I am capable of being critical and all those things. But I, I do think that actually like I've been thinking a lot about this in, in the presidential election yeah. and electability as a thing. And it's a lot like the idea that a corporate person needs to be a certain way. Mm. I think it's, can I curse on here? Yeah, of I course. Think it's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> and I think that as far as the presidential election goes, we should go for the person who we want to lead us, right? And that's what it comes down to. And so the only way that you'll really know is this, if you have some sense of who that person really is. And so to me, that is the best strategy. Just be yourself and trust that that's enough. Well, I want to talk about politics because obviously we're Politico. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's in the name. It's, it's in the name. <laughs> so it's not a surprise. Uh, but one of the things, and I've done interviews this year with other leaders of magazines and different platforms um, and how they are approaching politics mm -hmm. right now. Because mm -hmm. you said you're a it's a lifestyle brands and you have a lot of different magazines right. that are probably approaching it differently. But what's your headspace on that? Because- Politics is divisive, but everybody's paying attention to yeah, it right now. Yeah, I um, I spent some time with Nora O'Donnell last week, and it's been I've I've known her for a little bit, and it's been great to watch her rise into her new role. And she is, she's a <laughs> not to deflect. She's a great one to ask on this because what she would say is that it is the facts. It is the facts mm -hmm. that we have to go after. I think in the in the lifestyle place, it's different because we do have a lot of people who write opinion. You know, so after um. This weekend, for example, with the shootings in um, Dayton and El Paso, obviously, like, we're going to let our op-ed writers say what they think, and that feels important. But I, I do feel, you know, the, the audiences for our brands are extremely varied demographically, generationally, geography. They're just, it's a huge group, and I think we have to be respectful that they're place in America is different than everybody else's place and not try and tell them how to think. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean we can't have people on there who express how they think, but it can't be prescriptive. Have things gotten more political in the magazines in the last, you know, couple of years? Or is it just about kind of the status quo of, you know, enough, but not overwhelming? I think if anything, to we've gotten less political because I think we're a respite. You know, people are still living their lives. They still need solutions to everyday problems. They still want to know what to watch on TV, what movie to go to. They still want to know what to wear and how to prep for a big interview and how to raise a boy and all kinds of topics that are right in our sweet spot. Um, and there are a lot of people covering politics really well right now and really thoroughly. And I don't think we can play that game, but I think we can be sensitive to that being such a big part of their lives. And so that's sort of how we're treating it. Mm -hmm. So you've been in this role at Hearst for a little over a year, overseeing many, many editors, having lots of meetings. Can you talk a bit more about how you are managing employees now? Is it a different role than when you were running a magazine? How, what have you kind of learned yeah. looking back? Yeah, um, it definitely is different. I think I, 
I mean, first of all, it's different because I don't have the intimacy I have with the people that I used to. You know, when you're a managing editor at a magazine, like, you know, every you're in there. It's just it's so nice. It's a group of whatever it is, 30, 50 people. And you're you're, you know, all together on top of each other basically every day. (laughs) And that is not my experience now. I think that so much of what this job is for the people that work for me is is coaching them to to be great. And because I, with all these brands, I'm not, you know, I am quite in the weeds on some of them at certain points, but the reality is like, we hired these brand leaders because they need to lead these brands. And so my job is to help them do that the best they possibly can. Um, and so that part is very different. But even, I mean, I think what you're sort of asking too is the way that I approach them. And I think now more than ever, clarity in your messaging with the people you work with is so important. Like if it's going to be negative feedback, you have to say it. If it's going to be positive mm-hmm. feedback, you have to say it. And that this sort of like the, we, we don't have, there's, there's not time and there's not tolerance for veiled messaging. Mm-hmm. And if you had to predict in five, 10 years where this industry that is changing, as you said, so quickly and trying to evolve with, you know, online and different platforms, what are you most excited about? I mean, I believe that there will always be a place for print. We see that our readership, our loyal readership is incredibly stable, that we have, you know, strong renewal rates in the core. So I think there are people for whom the print experience is still critical. I think that digital will become a place where everyone, us included, looks to try and make our consumers pay something for what they're getting. It's hard. It's hard. And it's hard too when the content that you're doing, as in our cases, often doesn't have that same sense of urgency. But I think the expertise and the history of our brands helps us in that in that way. You know, the things that interest me are what will happen with voice, right? How will we integrate into that? I think the the way it works now is a little clunky. Like you have to know what you're looking for. And such a nice part of media consumption is surprise and the unexpected story. So I think we need to figure out sort of what the home page of voice is, because mm-hmm. right now it's all sort of call and response. I think chat feels like another place in which there will probably be media messaging going forward. It's sort of nice. It's a sacred space for just humans right. to talk to each other now in one-on-one ways. And I, But when you look at the fact that everyone from, you know, from 10-year-olds to 90-year-olds use text, mm-hmm. um, I think it will be unavoidably another place where we become participant. And I'm, I'm eager to figure out what that is. And of course, obviously, the thing that's already risen for all of us is video. I think there's still a long way to go in terms of short form and, you know, digital distribution of video. There's so much to figure out. But it's been really, really fun for me to get to be in that space because it's so different than, um, it's not that different actually from a big photo shoot in some cases. So we understand the production piece of it and we understand the story piece of it, but the stories are told, you know, the whole idea of having hosts, Mm -hmm. for example, is like, I guess it's like having columnists, but it's, you know, it's a whole new way of thinking. And it's, I, I have been, um, I've been enjoying that journey. All right. Well, I have one last question for you. Yeah. You could go back and talk to 20-something-year-old Kate. Yeah. What advice would you give her? Um, I, you know, I would say don't be afraid of your ambition. 
I think that there are two things that make media people survive. One is ambition and the other is uh, an, an openness to change. And I, I actually, um, I was talking to someone last week and every opportunity he was given, he said yes. And I feel like I did that too. And it is important to to say yes, because you want to do more and be more. And so I think sometimes I said yes, because I thought it was the nice thing to do. But I think it's okay to say yes, because it's advantageous to you too. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. A special thanks to Bob Ald for helping us out in New York. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 